now, since we are brothers and sisters in the family of God, since we are fellow heirs of the kingdom of God, and since we are being made into the image of Christ day by day, you call us into the world now to live as Jesus lived when He was among us. Which is a call, Lord, that is very often one that calls us to suffer for the benefit of others. Lord, I pray that You would give us the heart that was in Christ and the mind that was in Christ. A mind that desires above all for the will of God on the earth to be fulfilled. And above all, for Your name to spread to all people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, lately I've been reading um, this book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. It was put together by his son, D.A. Carson, who himself and my own judgment, if I was to give a judgment about D.A. Carson, is not an ordinary man. He is very much beyond ordinary. He is an extraordinary and prolific Bible teacher and scholar. D.A. Carson has probably written more pages than I have ever read. But this particular book that D.A. Carson has put together highlights the ministry of a very ordinary man. Father. Tom Carson was a longtime pastor in Quebec, Canada. Quebec was and still remains a predominantly French speaking people, and during the time of Tom's ministry, the culture was dominated largely by French speaking Roman Catholicism. Tom had a heart for these people, he loved these people. People And he desired above all for them to know the free grace that is found in the gospel of Christ. And so he served as a missionary and pastor to these French-speaking people of Quebec for many years. In fact, all of his life. He never became a megachurch pastor. Most of the churches he ministered in, especially in his first couple of decades, never experienced any dramatic growth, numerically speaking. In fact, many of his journal entries record things like this. Preached in the morning, 20 present. Preached in the evening, 19 present. One entry in particular said this. He said, preached, and then in parentheses, poorly, from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Preached poorly, from 2 Corinthians 2, 24 present. There was another one I had read about where he had preached one evening. He recorded, no one came. He faced many discouragements. When evaluating himself, he often had a very negative assessment, which was more often than not contradicted by those who actually knew him. 
Most people who knew Tom had a very positive view of him, but he, when he assessed himself, did not. Well, in this book of a very ordinary pastor, there's a fascinating account of a crisis that occurred in Tom's life. In the late 1940s, he was ministering in Montreal, but he was seeing very little fruit. And part of what appeared to make the ministry there so difficult was that Montreal was a very large city. And strategically, Tom had been trying to reach the entire city with the gospel, which was practically impossible to do. It was simply too large. So he and others began thinking about concentrating their ministry to a more defined area, at least to begin with, in Montreal. Well, around this time, the Baptist Union that he was a part of approached him about possibly moving to a place called Drummondville. The city Drummondville was only about an hour north of Montreal, only had around 30,000 people, and there was already a group of French-speaking evangelicals who were there who were requesting help from the Union to send them a pastor. At some point in their lives, they had come across the gospel, believed, but had no church. And for upwards to 20 years, for some of these people, they had no church to go to. And so they asked the union for some help. The union approached Tom about it. The idea was that Drummondville could be a strategic base from which French-speaking disciples could be raised up and trained, and then groups of them could be sent into different parts of Montreal to plant churches. After lots of prayer and counsel, Tom concluded that this was where the Lord was bringing him and his family. And part of the thinking that went into his decision-making was that the union was making it very clear that they were 100% in support of him and this work. In fact, many of the churches in the union had already raised thousands of dollars to support Kim in the work, as well as to secure a particular piece of property in Drummondville that was very strategic. It was in the heart of the city. Well, at the same time that this work was beginning, a man named T.T. Shields was serving as the president of the union. Shields himself was somewhat of a celebrity. He was well known among not only people within Canada, but people within the U.S. as being a, a very good preacher of the gospel. In fact, many people called him the Canadian Spurgeon of the day. But he was also known for being a leading voice against the encroaches of Protestant liberalism in Orthodox institutions and churches during that time. Shields believed, rightly, that liberalism was destroying the gospel. And part of the reason was because liberalism denied anything supernatural about the gospel. The resurrection was not something that actually happened. 
It was more a, a spiritual way of speaking about Jesus' ongoing spiritual life to people who claim to be Christians now. There was actually no gospel then. And so Shields rightly opposed it. The problem, however, was that practically all of his energy was poured into fighting against it as well as Roman Catholicism. And as a result, his ministry was increasingly becoming one that was characterized by nothing but negativity. He was always looking for a fight. And any perceived deviations, real or not, from his leadership or what he was preaching were attacked with vigor. And this fighting mentality that began to develop shaped the way he led in the union and among the churches. He didn't lead. He dictated. He gave orders. Well, at one point around 1948, early 1948, there was a man named W. Gordon Brown who was serving as the president of Toronto Baptist Seminary. This was a seminary that was originally founded by T.T. Shields, but he was, uh, Brown was now serving as its president. And Shields practically ordered him to leave his position as president of this institution as well as the current church he was pastoring to come on staff at Jarvis Street Baptist Church, which is where Shields was preaching. Well, Brown declined. and Largely, the reason was because he didn't like the path Shields was going down. He didn't like the leadership. He didn't like the constant fighting that was taking place. And so he declined. And then shortly after this, he ended up starting his own seminary, which became somewhat of a rival seminary. Now, Tom Carson didn't like getting involved with politics of the Baptist Union. That wasn't his concern. Carson's concern was preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, reaching the French-speaking people of Canada. But one day, someone happened to ask him his opinion on the whole Brown Shields situation. And he simply stated to this person that he thought Brown was actually in the right for declining the order of Shields to leave his church and to come to his and eventually to move on. That's all he said. He gave his opinion. Someone asked, he said, I think Brown was in the right not to do that. Well, eventually his opinion makes it around to T.T. Shields. That's how gossip travels. And Shields, operating as he was, as though any disagreement with his decisions was an act of treason, wasn't happy about it. And as a result, he began to sabotage the work in Drummondville. Without the okay of the churches, who had given thousands of dollars to purchase property and support Tom Carson's move to Drummondville, 
Shields directed the finance committee to withhold and then eventually redirect the funds in another direction. And when he did that, it forced Tom into a position where he had to take out a loan for money he didn't have to secure the property that was about to be lost and all the while he's moving his family to this new city with deadlines to meet. To make matters even worse, Shield sent out a letter to the churches in the Union essentially accusing Tom of conspiring with others to weaken the Union, which was not true. So Tom, in the midst of moving his family and taking on an unnecessary financial burden, and completely oblivious and confused as to why the funds that the unions promised were no longer available, had to write a letter of his own to the churches, explaining everything that was going on and his own experiences. Well, the churches eventually got this letter and did some investigating of their own and found that Tom was not involved in any conspiracy to overthrow the union. And they ended up raising even more funds that went directly to Tom to compensate him for what was nearly lost. So essentially the churches voted with their feet in favor of Tom and his work. Shields had clearly overreacted and hashed out a wicked plan of his own to respond to a conspiracy that didn't exist. And it nearly cost a man his security, his ministry, his family, everything. Anyone could look at what Shields had done at that time and could have easily, as a result, harbored some resentment and some anger. Especially if you're in Carson's position. Anger directed towards Shields. But what was remarkable about Tom was that despite what happened to him, no one ever heard Tom say a negative thing about Shields. No one ever heard him lash out or speak bitterly against him. Not even his own children overhearing perhaps conversations he was having within his own home. In fact, his children's only memory of shields that they later recorded was of how well their parents spoke of this man. How he was such a great Bible teacher and preacher and how they had profited from so much of his preaching ministry. Despite how bad they had been treated, they continued to show this man honor. Well, the passage that we are in this morning, these short two verses, really teaches us that for the Christian This should not be an abnormal response. This should actually be very normal. Showing honor to someone is not based upon how worthy they are to receive it, but upon how worthy the name of God 
is and his works. Jesus in the Gospels, you'll remember, commands his people to honor those who may in fact hate them. He says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, those who want to kill you. You pray for them. You love them. And then in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do not all those who are known in the world as being great sinners do the same? Love their own? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The Gentiles being those who are outside of the people of God. Don't those people do the same? Beginning in the fifth chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul has been instructing Timothy how the church is to show honor to others. And he begins with widows in chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. And we saw there that if a widow has a family who can care for her, it is their obligation to do so, and in that way to show honor to her. Then in verse 17, he turns to the elders of the church, and he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. But both of these charges, both of these commands in verse 3, moving down to verse 17, shouldn't really be too challenging. A church honoring widows by caring for them or a family doing the same may bring some financial burdens may bring some logistical challenges, and there may even be some emotional challenges that come with seeing your parents lose their independency. But these are women you love. These are people the church loves and has loved for some time. These are mothers and grandmothers and even great-grandmothers who love you and who love the church themselves. This is family. You want to care for them. You want to honor them. That comes, it should at least come naturally. The elders of the church who are worthy of double honor, these are men in the church who the church loves. They have, the church has themselves appointed these men to serve as elders within the church. They give themselves to the people of God. They pray for you. They teach you. They carry your burdens with them. Honoring them, or considering them worthy of double honor, that really shouldn't be a great challenge. It should be something you desire to do. It brings you joy to do it. You benefit from their serving. But when we come to chapter 6, we see Paul calling for a kind of honor that can be spiritually and emotionally costly. Greatly costly. It can be painful 
It's the kind of honor that Jesus calls us to show when He calls us to love our enemies. In verse 1, Paul is addressing the relationship between a bondservant, a slave, and an unbelieving and even oppressive master. Now, there's two reasons why I'm describing the master in verse 1 like that. Number one, Paul describes the bondservants here as those who are under a yoke as bondservants, as slaves. Now, in the first century, someone could have been a bondservant and not have been in an oppressive and demeaning situation, particularly if the master was a Christian. One of the things that we saw when we went through Ephesians was that the gospel fundamentally transformed the master-slave relationship such that no longer was a slave to be considered your property, but your brother or your sister in Christ. A human being made in the image of God, deserving of all the dignity that comes with that image. And so that master-slave relationship within a Christian context was really transformed into something that was no different, really, than an employee and an employer relationship. That's, that's really the extent it was supposed to go within the New Testament. That's what Paul teaches But when the Bible uses the language of being under a yoke of slavery, it's referring to oppression, a burden upon someone. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery there is the curse of the law. Great burden to every sinner who knows his desperate need for God. It is a yoke of slavery. So here in 1 Timothy 6.1, the bondservant is in an oppressive situation. He's under a yoke as a bondservant. Number two, the other thing, is that the master here appears to clearly be an unbeliever. Because Paul, notice, is concerned about how the master might respond to God based upon the bondservant's life. Look again in verse 1. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And here's the reason why. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, it doesn't make much sense to be concerned about whether or not someone's life is going to lead to the the gospel and the name of God and the teaching of the gospel being reviled if they're a believer. So here we have Paul giving instructions to believers, people who had heard the gospel, believed, and set free 
by its message, but who are also bondservants by occupation, by enslavement, by a whole numerous different ways of getting in that situation. And they're bondservants under an oppressive and unbelieving master. And notice what he says the bondservants should do. Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Regard them. Think of them in this way. Use your mind and your intellectual capabilities and your reasoning and your rationality, your heart, your desires. You regard them and think of them in this way. This way. Master is worthy of all honor. And notice how the honor climaxes at this point with the most difficult of situations. It began back in verse 5 with widows as honor. Simply honor. Honor the widows who are truly widows. And then it increases with the elders to Double honor. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And then it climaxes with worthy of all honor. All kinds of honor. Not towards the people inside the church, but towards those who are outside of it. And perhaps even brutal. Friends, make no mistake about it. Paul is calling for an action that's going to be incredibly difficult and painful and costly. Paul was not against a person seeking freedom. In fact, he was an advocate of it. He addresses bondservants in 1 Corinthians 7, and he said there, If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. Paul was very much pro-freedom. But for the Christian, our social status, our worldly existence, our reputation or esteem among others, our freedom, our slavery, or our education is not our highest and chief obligation and priority. Our greatest end and goal and desire is for the name of God to be proclaimed and to go forth into the nations and into families and into communities. We have been saved and rescued by a gracious God. And we know the world needs that above all. And because that is our greatest desire, we will and should give even our own lives for it. Paul is saying to these bondservants, You are in a situation that is clearly not one you want to remain in forever. You do not serve a Christian. 
You do not serve someone who cares about you and considers you as someone with value. You may be a bondservant to someone who is indeed cruel. Which is all the more reason why they need Christ. And they need to know Him. And they need to see Him. And the only way that's going to happen is through you. These masters are blind to the beauty of their Creator, the dignity of human beings, and you are in a position to bear a cross in front of them and to give a picture of the Gospel, not only in how you speak to them, but in how you live in their presence. Entrust yourself to God And love them and honor them as Jesus loved you. That's essentially what he's calling them to. Let me modernize this just a little bit. Imagine that you're a believer, new or mature, in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, Christianity is outlawed. Someone reports you to the authorities. You're arrested. You're thrown in prison. The guards there are cruel to you. They beat you. Sometimes they may starve you. They torture you. They mock you. They ridicule you and revile you. And at any moment in time, you could even be put to death. What kind of response does the gospel call you to have? Do you curse the guards? Do you spit at them? You go bitter towards them? You conspire against them? Do you make prison escape your primary focus? Or do you do good to them? And do you pray for them? Perhaps even if you remember some hymns you've known for some time, you sing glorious hymns in their presence. You show them gentleness, even though they are harsh with you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says this, If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You want to know how to live a blessed life in Christ? You suffer for righteousness' sake. Verse 18 of that same chapter. Why? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. In chapter 4 of that Letter, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, equip yourselves, gather your weapons for yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
That is the mind that the gospel ultimately calls us to have above all. The mind of Christ who suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. The mind to honor and bless even those who may cause us harm. Because in this way, the sufferings of Christ and the glory of God in the Gospel are made known in our own bodies. Now when Paul moves on from verse 1 into verse 2, he switches from the relationship between a bondservant and an unbelieving master to a bondservant and a believing master. And with that switch comes an assumption that the believing master is good. He knows the gospel and he knows what the gospel calls him to do. He loves his household, all of his household in Christ, which includes whatever servants may work for him. They are to be like family to him. But there's still a work relationship there, right? And there's still an authority relationship that's there. The spiritual equality that the two have by virtue of the gospel doesn't erase any or all authority that exists there because the gospel doesn't erase authority structures. It transforms them. It makes them new. So for example, if you work at a school as a teacher, as many of you do, and the principal of that school is a fellow believer... Just because you are both equal in Christ doesn't mean you don't have to do your job. Or you get to tell your boss what to do. Or that the Christian principle isn't allowed to tell you to do your job if you're not doing it. You're still under the authority of that principle. And the fact that you work for a Christian principle shouldn't motivate you to do less work, but to work even harder. Because the one you are serving is a fellow believer in Christ, and as uh, by virtue of that, is beloved. Beloved by God. And so Paul says, verse 2, in this situation, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Friends, in all of our relationships, whether with believers or unbelievers, what shapes and determines these relationships What shapes and determines our love for them, our kindness toward them, our desire and willingness and pursuit to honor them is not ever on the basis of how well they treat us. It's not ever on the basis of what they might be able to do for us 
or what they have done for us in the past. It's not on the basis of who they are on the social spectrum. How we relate to people, everyone, is on the basis of who God is and what He has done for us in and through Christ. It transforms everything about our relationships prioritizes above all things, not ourselves, but the glory of God. We were enemies at one time. We were blasphemers and idolaters. We created our own gods, either with our own hands or with our own minds. We made a mockery of the very one who created us. And yet, as Paul tells us, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That's the kind of picture I want people to see in my life. That's the kind of picture I want to fight for, and kill sin for, and pray for, and pursue holiness for, and long for, and work for, I want people to see Jesus. I want to be able to say with Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For your sake. But there's a cost to that. I have to die. Me, Dallas, I have to die. I have to be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in and through me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. As John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. And as I decrease, and my pride decreases, my bitterness decreases, my self-righteousness decreases, and whatever else gets in the way of Christ being magnified in my body decreases, then will my relationships with others be colored by the blood of the Gospel Christ. And then will my body which will one day be turned to dust, be used to bring glory to the Savior who has saved me. Friends, that is my very same prayer for you. That your day-to-day living would be a day after day of dying to yourself to make much of the King who has rescued you from the bondage of your sin. Would you pray with me? Father, there are not words that can express the joy adequately of knowing You as Lord and no longer as enemy.
at a great cost to your Son. He has died to reconcile His enemies to Himself. Lord, our prayer is that we would become a people like that. That we would desire above all, above our comforts and our life's ambitions, we would desire above all to have Christ be made known in our bodies. And so, Lord, we pray that You would give us the humility and the power of the Spirit needed to honor those in our lives who may in fact be against us. Those who have harmed us in some way, Lord, that we would speak well of them and seek their good. Because that is what You have done for us. Lord, make us a gospel people above all. I pray these things in Jesus' name.